You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. We gotta live on science Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer. And Dr. Andrea Love. And this is our final episode of 2022. What a year it's been. (laughs) Andrea and I were just commenting that we're like, I don't know, crawling our way into 2023 right now. It's like, I don't know, December is just kind of kicking our butts. So on this episode of the pod, we're doing something a little different, a little bit more playful and in the holiday spirit. The title of this episode, well, the the spirit of this episode is going to be 12 Days of Science. So we're going to go through 12 science facts that we wish everyone new. And we've covered all of these topics at length. So we're just going to be sort of, you know, doing some surface overviews. But if you want any more information on any of these topics, we we have the resources and you could do a deeper dive. If you haven't listened to last week's episode, definitely tune in. Uh, it proved to be rather controversial. We covered the topics of dry needling and cupping and the, the evidence to support their practice um, or lack thereof. We got a lot of heat in particular for our coverage of cupping. So yeah, definitely, definitely worth a listen if you haven't tuned in yet. All right. So Andrea, what are your holiday plans? Well, we we did some Hanukkah celebrations this past weekend. I think most people who, who participate in Jewish holidays know that Hanukkah is not really one of the big ones, but it kind of tends to coincide with Christmas. So it you know, it's kind of evolved. And then um, this coming weekend, we'll probably head up to Connecticut to see uh, various members of my family. Oh, nice. What about you, Jess? Oh, oh my gosh. So it's like a, a, I almost said triple-demic. Oh my gosh. It's like a triple whammy for me in December and late December because it's it was my son's birthday. And then I had, you know, Hanukkah and then we have Christmas next week. So it's just nonstop. We are hosting Christmas. So we're going to have family over. I never grew up celebrating Christmas. And so once I was with my my husband, even when we started dating, I got really into, <laughs> really into Christmas. So we go big, but I've really tried to immerse myself in his traditions and all that good stuff. And oh my gosh. So yes, just really quickly, yesterday was my son's actual birthday, as you know. And so we did a little birthday cake, but then it was also the second night of Hanukkah. And my kids are running around like high on the you know, like the excitement and then they had the the sugar coursing (laughs) through their veins and all that good stuff. They're running around and I'm like trying to convey the seriousness of of Hanukkah and like (laughs) talk like about like persecution and like, you know, like all these things. And they're just like, you know, more cake. But anyway, so it's been, it's been, it's been a lot. Um, One more question before we get into this. I'm just so curious. I feel like people have different stances on, um, like New Year's resolutions. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I'm like, uh, 
I feel like there's pros and cons, right? Like, it, it is a good time, I guess, to reflect back on, like, things you intended to do and maybe try and make small motions. But I also think it puts so much pressure on people. Like, you know, the holidays are hard for many people, myself included. And then, you know, having this pressure to be like, oh, I'm going to make all these positive changes in my life. Like, you know, we're, we're all doing the best we can. Mm-hmm. And, and I feel like, you know, for me, I'd rather, you know, look back and, and use it as a way to be like, okay, you know, like some good things happened last year, some bad things happened last year, you know, what's in my control? And instead of like adding to anxiety and right. being like, oh, well, I'm going to be better about getting up early in the morning and going running, you know, like it's dark and cold and, you know, let's let's be realistic. Mm-hmm. I like that. And I feel like that's sort of, if, if I can say this, like I feel like that's sort of our approach to, to everything, like even our science communication. It's like, you know, the, on one hand, um, how, how do I art- articulate this? Like, I, I think what I'm trying to say is that like you have to be practical. Like, I think that's also yes. sort of at the at the core of what how we try to communicate. It's like, yes, there are certain things that ideally we would you know we would do, but then you also have to throw in real life and practicality yes. and you know you know um, all that good stuff. So I'm I'm totally with you anyway. And maybe on that note, we could just send love to others you know who are sort of struggling through the holidays because we've been really transparent about you know we've both lost. Um, people who are who were just you know so central to to our lives um andrew you know of course you you lost your brother and i I lost my father and so the holidays are just a bittersweet time and we just want to send love to folks who who are kind of juggling the grief with also trying to to make the most of the holidays and you know put on a brave face and, and and celebrate as well so All right. With that, should we dig into our 12 days of science? Yes, let's do it. All right. What's your first? I'm looking at the order now, and I think I want to reorder it very quickly, but I think my... My number one is that everything is chemicals. And I feel like we've been plagued with, or, you know, the general population has been plagued with this idea that, you know, some things are toxic in commercially available products and we should be scared of them or we should avoid them and because they're chemicals. And, and, you know, it's, it's just this mentality of chemophobia that I think is just so pervasive in, in pop culture, in social media, and things like that. And I think people need to understand that, you know, you are a sack of chemicals. Your body, every everything that you are made of, your cells, it's all networks of chemicals strung together in organized fashions. And that's true for everything we encounter. And so I think we have to kind of dispense with this mentality that we have to be scared of things that are marketed in a certain way because the reality is much more nuanced than that. Yes, there are things that can be harmful that we can be exposed to, but, you know, again, even that is not so cut and dry, right? We always say the dose makes the poison, and that's true for for literally everything. Even something like water that we need for survival can be harmful at a high enough exposure. We always say that that, you know, that label, a lot of, um, in particular in the cosmetic and beauty industry, they'll slap a label on on chemical free what does I, and honestly I, I really I struggle with understanding what that means I, re, I I'm even trying to under, 
understand what it is that they're trying to convey with that, you know? And do you notice that whenever we put out this message, everything is chemicals, we get a handful of messages without fail, and they'll say, well, okay, everything is chemicals, but obviously some chemicals are harmful. So we're, we're talking about the bad stuff. And I think, Andrea, it's so important to underscore what you just said, which is the dose makes the poison. And truly everything could be harmful at certain doses. So it just, I think that phrase, chemical free, is just so frustrating, right? <laughs> oh God. All right. Well, if I can sort of piggyback on that, um, something that I wanted to um, to highlight as one of my, you know, 12 days of science is that natural is not inherently better and that sometimes lab made is actually better for us and for the environment. And I don't know, you know, there's this idea that if it's natural, it's got to be good. And, you know, of course, we'll talk about things that are in nature that are poisonous and are, you know, toxic at even, you know, very extremely small doses. But there's this idea that if things are manufactured in a lab, that they're, you know, if things are synthetic, that they're bad for us. What is that ingredient that was sort of the basis for, um, was it aspirin? totally blanking right now but it came from a plant and people would like chew on the leaves this is you know hundreds and hundreds of years ago before we had what we know as you know a bottle a a pill an aspirin pill right and so they would chew on this leaf and yes it would alleviate it would have some pain relief but then it also came with a variety of really crappy pun intended side effects including you know really bad stomach side effects um, nausea diarrhea things like that and so now we make this in a lab and we're able to manufacture it in a way where we don't get those harmful side effects right so that's just one example of something that you know, is is actually better for us when it's manufactured in a lab. And then the other thing is that people don't realize when we are taking things from nature, we are, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think of an exception to this, but by using nature, you're harming nature, you're destroying nature. I'm thinking of things like deforestation, you know, and other harmful practices. So when we're making things in a lab, we are able to avoid those practices. Do you have any, I feel like I'm rambling. Any other examples or anything to add to that? Well, I was just going to say you're thinking of willow bark yes. in the compound was salicin. Oh. And yes, that that ended up becoming the synthesized chemical aspirin. And so, you know, I think I think you really hit the nail on the head there is that, you know, people who kind of fall prey to this appeal to nature fallacy think that nature and science are kind of diametrically opposed. And that's not actually the case, right? It's just the case that not every single thing in nature is necessarily beneficial. There are lots of things in nature that are potentially dangerous. And by being able to tweak them in the lab using science, we can make them safer. We can make them more um, specific. So one, a, a great example is, you know, pesticides that are used in agriculture, right? So pesticides kill certain insect species that can kill plants because that's what they do in nature. And so, you know, naturally derived pesticides, which are kind of fall into the umbrella of organic pesticides are often what we call broad spectrum. They kill lots of insects because they're derived from plants, which that's what they do. Plants don't want insects to eat them. And some of those insects that they kill are beneficial to the plant, right? They kill the pests of the plants. And so by tweaking those chemicals in the lab and creating a synthetic version of them, we can actually make them more specific, meaning they only kill the pests, the target 
insects and they don't kill non-specifically and that's ultimately beneficial to the environment at large. Love it. Thank you for for building out my day of science. All right, Andrea, what's next on your list? So I guess that's a perfect segue to my organic is not superior. So organic in the world of chemistry has a very different meaning than how it's used in commercial products because organic typically relates to chemical molecules that have carbon in them, whereas inorganic molecules do not. So, you know, an organic molecule would be a carbohydrate, for example, whereas an inorganic molecule would be something like sodium chloride, which is table salt. But let me focus on the topic at hand. But so in the context of commercial products, organic typically refers to products that are using organically grown crops. And so there is... Some certification criteria for USDA organic, um, and it typically relates to the type of pesticides that can be used um, and some farming practices related to that. But um, there's a common misconception that organic products don't use pesticides. That's false. They simply use organic pesticides, which simply mean they're naturally derived. And as I just mentioned, naturally derived pesticides are not necessarily better and in some cases can be more detrimental to the environment and also to people. There's also fallacies that it's better for the environment, and that's not actually the case either. Some of these pesticides can persist in the groundwater and can actually have further reaching effects than ones that are altered in the lab to create synthetic pesticides that maybe um, don't bioaccumulate or decompose more quickly. And also, you know, there's just kind of this misconception that it's healthier, and there's just no evidence to support that whatsoever. Organic products don't contain more nutrients. They don't contain extra nutrients. And so I think we just need to get away from kind of this, This again, this is fear-based marketing. A lot of companies basically pay for a label that says organic, and it allows them to charge more money and, and make additional profit. And, you know, there, there's just no science to kind of support that. If you want to purchase organic products because it makes you comfortable or you have the financial resources to do so, go for it. But it's not superior in uh, any sort of health or science fashion. And speaking of that fear-based marketing, you know, we've talked about that list, the dirty dozen. Who puts that out? Why am I blanking? The Environmental Working Group. Right. EWG. That's right. And it's like, you know, again, I think it makes people scared. I mean, it actually, it absolutely does because I've had family members basically freak out when they came into my house and I was cutting up an apple that, you know, wasn't, wasn't organic for or strawberries or I forget what tops the list of the dirty dozen and and it just sort of yeah it just it's all rooted in fear a lot of it is is um is baseless all right well I guess let me see I'm looking at my list sort of related to this if I could move on clean beauty has no standard definition we have an entire podcast on this I think we've done several posts on this topic actually so clean beauty is a marketing term there's no standard standardized definition. So if you ask one company what what they mean by putting out a clean product, and then you asked another, they would have completely different definitions. Um, Because clean is, it's subjective, it's vague, it's nondescript. And I think even more important than that is there's no governing body for clean beauty. And the claims range from this 
chemical-free, which we already talked about, to being environmentally friendly. And so, again, I think it's this appeal to nature. You know, they'll slap a label on it where it says natural ingredients, and we know that natural is not inherently safer than synthetic. They often talk about preservative-free. And honestly, I do not want a product that doesn't have preservatives because then I'm concerned about things like mold, bacteria, and uh, microbial growth. Um, and then I think on the podcast, we talked about things like allergenicity, right? When, when you when you talk about preservative-free. And the other thing is that, and I respect this, you know, if some people are trying to be environmentally conscious, the thing is that products labeled as clean are not necessarily better for the environment. So this is, again, just another example of fear-based marketing. It's a, it's a marketing ploy. Um, I think people, and again, I want to like empathize with consumers who, who think that they're buying products that are safer or better for themselves, for their children, for the environment. But the fact of the matter is that clean, there's no standard definition and it doesn't necessarily mean that it's better for you or better for the environment. So that that's a pet peeve. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I totally agree. And I mean, in reality, it, it really means nothing. You know, it's just used to convey this superiority and, and people use it, you know, when referring to food too. They're like, I only eat clean. What what does that mean? Like you wash your vegetables? That's a good thing. Right. But, you know, they're referring to or often they're referring to like, well, I don't eat any processed foods. And, and I think people forget that that everything we eat is processed in some way. And so, you know, again, it, it's used to in some ways, you know, kind of exhibit this air of superiority or insinuate that, you know, people that don't have financial means to pay extra for these sorts of marketing labels are somehow less healthy or doing themselves a disservice. And and I think that that's, you know, a really dangerous kind of message to to propagate. Agreed. All right. What's next, Andrea? Let's talk about GMOs. So GMOs or genetically modified organisms are things that we have altered their genome, their genetic material in some way. There's a common misconception again that they are bad and this is not true. And also it's not really accurate because technically everything that we encounter nowadays has been genetically modified in some way. There are all sorts of different ways to genetically modify organisms. And before we had more advanced technology where we could actually affect, you know, organisms at a cellular level or at a single, you know, single cell level, we were doing things like exposing seeds of plants to high doses of radiation and enforcing mutations and kind of seeing what grew out of that. Or we were crossbreeding or selective breeding or taking, you know, dogs with certain physical traits and forcibly mating them with a dog of another, you know, advantageous trait and hoping something good came out of it. So in reality, everything is a GMO. But but kind of in the context of how it's used in, again, consumer products, they're not bad. You know, the non-GMO project is, again, a marketing ploy that any company can buy that label and slap it on their product, even if their product doesn't have a GMO counterpart. Um, there's only 11 products, uh, 11 agricultural products that are FDA approved to have a GMO option in the United States. Um, and they'll slap it on things that don't even have genes like salt. And in many ways, GMOs are beneficial. So, for example, we would not have papayas at all in this world without GMOs because 
non-GMO papayas were wiped out by a virus and we were able to genetically engineer papaya that was resistant to this particular virus that killed all the papayas and now we have papaya. So it saved this fruit that many people find delicious, but it also saved farmers that relied on papayas for their income. Many other examples, we have things that are um, genetically modified so that they don't need to be sprayed with a pesticide, so they don't need to be treated with chemicals because they produce a natural pest repellent. Or we have rice that produces vitamin A. It's called golden rice, which is critical in countries that subsist on rice, which, you know, in some does is not super high in some of these vital micronutrients. So again, I think we need to dispel with the fear-based marketing. Um, GMOs are not harmful, and in many ways, they're beneficial. Again, there are only a small group of consumer products that have GMO options. And another GMO that I think people are not aware of is human insulin. We genetically engineered bacteria, E. coli bacteria, to produce human insulin. And you know what? That saves millions of people's lives who have type 1 diabetes. Andrea, I don't know why I cracked up when you said papaya. I just didn't expect (laughs) you to say papaya, and then you said it like 20 times in a row and <laughs> and I on it we're 100% creating an infographic um like you like papaya you know well thank your GMOs or whatever <laughs> um anyway love it that is amazing and actually I don't I don't think I knew that about papayas so I I for one am very <laughs> grateful for for GMOs um all right can I move on to the next one please okay so supplements oh Andrea have we have we gotten <laughs> heat for this one so we all know the supplement industry is a multi-billion dollar industry but what a lot of people don't understand or, or don't realize is that it's not regulated by the FDA So nutritional supplements are classified as food products, not medicines. So they're not regulated by the strict standards governing, you know, things like prescription drugs or over-the-counter drugs. And we just recently did a post um, on this study that, you know, um, scientists went out and they tested a bunch of supplements and they found that the labels on supplements were not accurate. You know, that some of the supplements contained ingredients that weren't listed on labels or the amounts of the ingredients were were you know were mislabeled people also don't realize you know i think the the sentiment is sort of like oh what's the harm well first of all supplements tend to be extremely expensive and they're often not necessary since we get the majority of our you know required micronutrients through our diet but and so you're basically paying for extremely expensive urine but there're also concerns about things like drug interactions so before you start taking a new supplement you should absolutely run it by your clinician, uh, you know, who's familiar with the, the medications that you're taking in your medical history. And then whenever we say this, you know, we get messages from folks, you know, what if I'm trying to get pregnant? Or what if my my doctor told, you know, told me I'm, I'm you know, I'm 70 years old, and they, they recommended that I take, you know, magnesium or calcium? Well, of course, you know, if you're diagnosed with a deficiency, or if you're trying to get pregnant, and, and you know, it, of course, it's a good idea to take um, prenatals that contain folic acid and folic and all that good stuff. That's the exception. And then also, you know, Andrew, we, we have been getting a lot of questions about things like, well, what about in the winter time um, when I'm not getting my vitamin D from the sun? I'm not going outdoors as much. 
I think people don't realize that we do still get quite a bit of vitamin D, you know, especially, um, you know, through, through our diet, if you're drinking fortified milks. Um, but if not, I mean, do you have anything to say about that? I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. That's a really specific example. I just feel like we've been getting that question a lot in the winter time. So I don't know if you have thoughts on vitamin D in the winter. But I think that I'm getting off topic that, and you could certainly weigh in on that in a second, that overwhelmingly supplements are really not likely to be necessary, and they're also not regulated by the FDA. I think that's the crux of what I wish people understood. Yeah, and I think, you know, obviously, Jess, you're focusing on, you know, like specific vitamins and things like that, but there's a lot of other supplements out there that don't include anything that is known to be beneficial, and they're marketed as, you know, immune boosting or this, that, and the other, and they have herbs that can be potentially dangerous to people. They can have, again, drug interactions, but they can cause things like gastrointestinal upset. I mean, it's just, it's the Wild West and people can, I mean, there are kind of regulations about what they can claim, but the kind of scrutiny about the claims made by supplement companies is all aftermarket. So once they're on the shelves. And so, you know, a lot of times these things are sold with misleading information. They're, They're not including all the ingredients. They're including things that are actually not in the supplements and and yeah and just one final thing and I, I know we, we're going to move on here but the, I think the other harm harmful thing is when people take supplements rather than going to if, if they're sick or their child is sick rather than going to clinician and getting diagnosed and then receiving treatment um, you know when they'll take things like elderberry supplements or you know oh I, I you know, I'm not feeling well or my child's not feeling well so I just gave them zinc and, and elderberry um, you should be going to you know if your child is very sick you should be going to the pediatrician and finding out what's going on um, and, and making sure that they don't require medical attention and treatment. So that that's the other thing that scares me. If you're taking supplements in lieu of, you know, actual medical diagnosis and treatment. All right. Enough about that. Andrea, what's next? I think kind of in the same vein, um, you know, we've, we've talked a little bit recently about these at-home health tests and there's a wide variety of these, you know, these, they've got the, there's some that are claiming to diagnose STD or things like Lyme disease or um, the food sensitivity tests or, you know, even um, testing for all these levels of blood sugar and iron and this, that, and the other. And again, these these at-home direct-to-consumer tests are not regulated by the FDA. They're not FDA approved. And often they're really just a ploy to scare you into thinking that you need them, that they're, you know, you need to be monitoring these health metrics in some ways. And unfortunately, most of them are not based on on real science. Um, They kind of propagate this you know, pseudoscience where there's a nugget of truth behind it and they kind of exploit it to sell something that is not based in science. And so one of the key examples that we've talked about quite a bit are the food sensitivity tests. And so they, you know, they, you take a drop of your blood and and these companies claim to tell you everything that you're sensitive to by levels of a particular type of antibody. In this case, it's called IgG. And in reality, IgG antibodies are a thing, but they don't indicate sensitivity to anything. They're actually just telling you whether you've been exposed to that thing, that substance, because IgG are antibodies that are kind of viewed as our tolerance antibodies. This is very different from an allergy and very different from a food intolerance, which is a a digestive issue. But unfortunately, you know, these companies have very clever marketing ploys and they're able to convince people that they need to be kind of testing for all of these sorts of things 
things, whether it's these supposed food sensitivities, which we've discussed at length, we have a full podcast episode on that, or it's, you know, you have to be monitoring your blood sugar or this, that, and the other if you don't have diabetes. And, you know, in reality, these things are supposed to fluctuate. Your body has a very rigorous process of maintaining balance called homeostasis. And you don't exist statically. Your body is dynamic. So if you consume something that has carbohydrates in it, it's broken down into sugar. Your pancreas then produces insulin to balance and counteract that sugar. And and this is kind of dynamic. And so I think, you know, we need to get away from kind of this this at-home health hacking trend. If you have concerns about a true medical issue, you need to go to a trained physician. Preach. Um, Also, Andrea, do you know who Iggy Azalea is? (laughs) I I do. Do you know when she says... (laughs) Ah, Gigi, why? Do you know what I'm talking? Every time you say IGG, I feel like you're going to break out in song. Um, I don't know. A lot of people are going to be rolling their eyes right now. So I'm just going to move on to my to my next one. All right. Antibiotics um, are not always appropriate. And you should not be using antibiotics anytime you're sick. And and listen, you know, as a mom, I know when, when my kids are sick and we go to the pediatrician, it would be so wonderful if they could hand us something that I could give my kid and it would make them better. But unfortunately, you know, if it's a viral infection, antibiotics are not going to do squat. Antibiotics are used for bacterial infections, not viral infections. And I think that, well, I know that there's there's a real problem where patients sort of, again, you want to feel like you're going to the doctor, you're leaving with something. And so I think a lot of times doctors will be like, okay, I'll give you a prescription for this antibiotic and, and we'll see if it if it helps. But really, the majority of the time, it's not necessary. And it's more of like a psycho, you know, psych, what is it? Uh, like a, a psychosomatic. psychosomatic, well, not psychosomatic, like a, like they're appealing to the psychological or emotional needs mm. of the patient. That's what I'm trying to say, you know. And so that that's something I, I think is just really important to underscore. And, you know, we, we recently did a post on the pandemic of antibiotic resistance. And this really freaks me out, because if we're taking antibiotics, when they're not necessary, if we're overusing antibiotics, or let's say we have leftover antibiotics in our uh, medicine cabinet and we're feeling sick and we're like, oh, let me let me try this. First of all, you know, you, you have to take certain antibiotics for, you know, for, for certain infections. And so you should not be reaching into your cupboard and just taking in any old antibiotic that you have laying around. And, you know, antibiotics, we were seeing that a lot of people are becoming resistant to antibiotics. And it's not like, you know, we have have an endless supply of antibiotics. You know, Andrea, you could certainly speak about this better than I can, but it really freaks me out. And I think especially, um, you know, COVID-19 has really affected antibiotic resistance. And we've talked about this. Um, It's really worsened the threat of antibiotic organisms. And I think a lot of it had to do with people taking unproven antibiotic treatments uh, for COVID-19, which of course we know is a viral illness caused by SARS-CoV-2 virus, and that really contributed to the inappropriate use of antibiotics. So basically, what I'm trying to say here is anytime you get sick, you do not necessarily need antibiotics. Um, And, you know, for certain viral infections, so let's talk about, you know, COVID um, or flu, there there are antivirals that may be appropriate, but that's very different than antibiotics. Andrea, I'm sure, do you have something to add to this as an immunologist? (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, you know, certainly antibiotics only target 
bacteria. And again, very not all bacteria are equal. Um, different antibiotics are going to treat different bacteria. And yeah, you know, for sure, the overuse or inappropriate use of antibiotics uh, provides or or puts um, evolutionary selection pressure on these populations of bacteria where you do, you know, shift the dynamics of these bacterial populations where those that have genes that confer resistance to a given antibiotic are going to survive in the presence of that antibiotic. And, you know, we don't have a lot of next gen or, or novel antibiotics. Um, so, you know, these super bugs, as, as they're often called colloquially, are starting to increase in prevalence. And it does pose a, a pretty substantial public health risk. And Andrea, I think this is maybe kind of related to the next um, day of science. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, the microbiome, it's such a buzzword these days. So the microbiome refers to the population of microorganisms that live in and on your body. And, you know, previous estimates used to say that, you know, bacteria cells outnumbered human cells by 10 to 1, but I think new data suggests that it's probably more of a one and a half to one ratio, but still you're more technically microorganism than you are human. Um, and we have all sorts of things. We have fungi living in our bodies. We have bacteria living in our bodies and on our bodies. And we do have some viruses that take up residence and none of these are pathogenic. So pathogenic, you know, refers to those that cause illness. These are uh, microorganisms that help us or they are benign. They they pose no risk or, and they don't help us. But a lot of them, uh, you know, a lot of the attention is focused on the gut microbiome. So those are the population of microorganisms that live in our gastrointestinal tract. And we know certain things about them. We know that they help us metabolize certain molecules that humans cannot metabolize independently. We know that they help educate our immune system so that our immune system knows what microorganisms they shouldn't respond to because they're benign or harmless and we and and they know and our immune system knows which ones to respond to because they're potentially disease causing. Um, so we know that it helps play a role in educating and priming our immune system. But Again, this is kind of the pseudoscience realm, right? So a nugget of truth, yes, the microbiome is important, has been co-opted into explaining away every single ailment or symptom. Everybody uses the phrase gut health now to, to claim that, oh, well, you know, your population of microorganisms in your gut is is dysregulated. And again, the microbiome contains hundreds of trillions of microorganisms and over 500 different species. And you can't make these broad claims and say, oh, well, you know, I did a at-home gut microbiome test and I saw that this one population has decreased, therefore it must mean something. And again, these are dynamic populations. They're going to change because they're going to respond to inputs. So for example, food that you eat. So certain bacteria will reproduce quickly because they thrive in that environment and others might not. And so these, these populations are constantly changing, but you can't make these clinical claims or these physiological claims because it's way more complex than that. You can't use it to diagnose things. Every single person has a very distinct microbiome and we don't know the full scope of what this means to make these sorts of statements. I'm going to move on to the next day of science, uh, which is near and dear to my heart, which is not all studies are created equal. You know, anytime we we do a post or we, we make a claim, um, people will send us a link to some study that seemingly refutes it. 
But when we do a post, we are critically appraising the body of evidence that's available on a topic. And we're looking, we're very closely examining the studies on a topic because the way that a study is designed, I mean, it's a science and it's an art. Um, and, and it's really important, you know, how, how were the participants selected? Is there a, um, you know, l- let's look at the control group. Is it comparable to our experimental group? Did they control for confounding variables that could also be impacting outcomes? So when you send us a, you know, a one-off study, it depends, you know, how, how was it designed? You know, what's the sample size? Uh, you know, there's so millions different factors to consider. And I don't think that people realize that's sort of why we named ourselves Unbiased Science. And I know sometimes we regret it because we get, you know, 800 messages a day saying more like biased science. But we picked our name specifically because what we're trying to do is critically appraising the quality of evidence on a topic and looking for biases and and really carefully paying the most attention to studies that do the most to reduce bias. And, and you know, you're absolutely right. There's no such thing as something that's completely unbiased. But, you know, certain study designs, like a randomized controlled trial, for example, that does a better job of minimizing bias than, you know, an observational study, for example. There are a million different types of biases, including selection bias, confirmation bias, recall bias, reporting, um, interviewer, attrition, response bias, information bias. I mean, a million different types of biases. So we just want to communicate that not all studies are created equal. Not all studies that you're reading have been peer-reviewed. Some are, um, you know, preprints or some are published in journals that have low standards, low quality standards. And so we as scientists, you know, we're not expert in everything, but we are expert in in our scientific fields and in the design of research. And so we're looking for those factors and putting, placing a higher weight on the studies that are well designed. And there we have it. Andrea, what is your final day of science? All right. It had to be an immunology one, obviously. Duh. And it has to do with the phrase inflammation. So inflammation in pop culture is used as a fear-based marketing term. Inflammation in the context of immunology is a very real thing. And again, this all stems back to pseudoscience, right? Pseudoscience uses these buzzwords that have a nugget of truth to them but are kind of co-opted and used to manipulate a a particular topic or used to support a topic that doesn't have evidence behind it. Inflammation is necessary, right? Every time we eat something, we technically have an inflammatory process because we have to catabolize, break down larger molecules into smaller molecules, and that generates inflammation in the true scientific meaning of the word. But our body is really good at balancing this, right? So we constantly have this push-pull of inflammatory responses in our body and and anti-inflammatory responses in our body. And unfortunately, companies or individuals have now basically attributed everything to causing inflammation. You know, you can't eat seed oils because it causes inflammation. You can't do this because it causes inflammation. And, you know, it's it just it does a disservice to people because now they're afraid of interacting with all sorts of different things. But it also impacts science literacy, because now people are using these words or phrases inappropriately to describe something that's not a real phenomenon or not a real concern. And it's 
it's very disheartening because I see medical professionals, healthcare workers, you know, even scientists and other irrelevant fields kind of using these terms inappropriately and and using this appeal to authority fallacy as well, where they're like, well, you know, oh, I, I read this word inflammation in a paper and it's used in the context of a, you know, cellular pathway. Therefore, it must have some whole organism, you know, physiological effect. And, and that's not the case. And I guess my biggest wish is that people would, you know, ignore these fear-based marketing tactics and just realize that, you know, our bodies are really good at regulating themselves. And yes, you know, diseases and medical issues can occur, but in the grand scheme of things, you know, eat seed oils, eat your Twinkie if you want it, like everything in moderation. And I feel like, you know, people have become paralyzed because they see things on social media that are just really distorting reality. I love that. All right. Well, I want to wrap things up on a positive note. Um, A reminder for folks that science is badass and it's absolutely amazing. And I just wanted to recap some some scientific developments of this year in particular. So we are close to having a vaccine for RSV. This is absolutely amazing. If you've been following (laughs) um, the rate of um, respiratory illnesses, including RSV this season, which have just been off the charts, making the lives of children and their parents absolutely miserable this year. Um, mRNA vaccines are being tested for cancer prevention and treatment. There have been recent nuclear fusion and green energy breakthroughs. Though controversial, there have been major advancements in xenotransplantation, which is animal to human organ transplantation. We now have a better understanding of certain diseases like multiple sclerosis and its relationship to Epstein-Barr virus. We now have drug-delivering contact lenses. The FDA has approved lenses that improve vision and also deliver medicine to the eyes. Um, right now, the medicine that um, that was approved actually, excuse me, the contact lens includes medicine that treats itchy eyes from allergies, but this has implications for um, drug delivery for lots of other illnesses as well. Um, There have been breakthroughs, Andrea, I know this is near and dear to your heart, in CAR-T therapy for things like lupus. There have been breakthroughs in gene therapy for things like hemophilia. Um, There's uh, development of something called a polypill, which I think seems straightforward, but actually isn't at all. It combines three medicines for heart disease, Um, so statins, aspirin, and ACE inhibitors, which prevent heart attacks, strokes, and other cardiac events. And for chronic out loud, can we please take a moment to acknowledge the mRNA vaccines for for COVID and the fact that millions upon millions of people's lives have been saved by these COVID vaccines, which we developed in record time. And it's just absolutely unbelievable to me. And how about a moment of appreciation for all the other vaccines that I feel like we now take for granted, like the flu shot and also MMR, MMR vaccines and all the other childhood vaccines that have prevented, again, millions upon millions of, of, you know, of illness and disabilities and death. So science is amazing, folks. And, you know, we always say science is not perfect. It's a process of discovery. But my goodness, has science allowed us to improve both the quality and quantity of our lives. I am totally grateful for science in 2022 and always. (laughs) 
<laughs> Andrea, any final thoughts? I mean, obviously, there are so many other things in the context of science and health that we could talk about. And we could obviously talk about this all day. But I think, you know, our goal here is really to help people better navigate the world of misinformation and, you know, just have a more moderate eye when viewing things that are kind of spread unchecked on social media, online, etc. We hope you guys have a restful holiday season or as restful as it can be. And we will be back here in the new year to talk more science. And as a reminder, if you want more unbiased science, you can check out our Substack subscription. We post extended content there periodically. Um, but the biggest perk is that you get access to our private Facebook group and our monthly live Q&As. And you also get to help us vote on future podcast topics, post topics, and submit questions for our Heard from the Herd segments. So you can check it out at theunbiasedscipod.substack.com. A paid subscription is only $5 a month. And yes, we are going to be taking a break until the new year, but we are ring in 2023 with a special guest to discuss a very topic, a topic that is near and dear to our hearts as animal lovers. And this is going to be pet food diets, and that includes fad diets. We will, of course, continue to provide updates on COVID, RSV, influenza, and other topics on our social media accounts. So be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Unbiased SciPod. Catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no nonsense, just science. Yeah. Oh, I am a scientist.